Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Before we, uh, we jump into our text, which is John 15, um, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, uh, John 15, 1 through 15 will be our, our text for this morning. Uh, I want to take a moment and uh, have a moment of prayer for Ukraine. Um, that we uh, have gotten a number of questions from people in the church. Hey, how can we engage and help serve um, the crisis of the Ukrainian refugees and Russian invasion? Um, and uh, we are connected to the crisis through one of our partners in ministry, Partners in Evangelism International, an organization uh, found and led by an LBC member. If you know the Stephs who attend the Laporte campus, they're from Romania. They lead that ministry. And they're significantly involved in providing relief to the stream of refugees from Ukraine who are crossing into the border of Romania. Um, and they've invited us to send a small team to Romania to tell, help in tangible ways to serve those who have been displaced by the invasion. So we're still praying for individuals to be a part of that team. So if you want to help serve Ukrainian refugees very directly through our church, you can either consider being a part of that team June 28th through July 8th. You can go to our websites or email Kevin Cram for more information on that. Or show up to the missions dinner on the 23rd and give a, a large donation to whatever fits your fancy for what's there to, uh, to be donated. But that's ways you can serve very directly um, but I want to pray for Ukraine before we jump into our, our sermon. So let us pray, then I'll read John 15, then sermon. Let's pray. Our Father God, we lift up the nation of Ukraine to you this morning. The violence, murder, and war done to them is unjust. And so we ask you to act. We pray in line with the words of David in Psalm 17, that you would keep Ukraine from the wicked who do them violence their deadly enemies who surround them. Arise, O Lord, confront them and subdue them. Deliver Ukraine from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of this world whose portion is in this life only. We pray for peace, we pray for justice, and we pray for protection for the innocent civilians, women, children, men of Ukraine. This moment reminds us both how evil can take root in our hearts and destroy, but also how good can resist evil and be a protection for the vulnerable. So, Father, we want to be good. We want to be people of peace, people of justice, people of kindness. And so we open your word to learn from Jesus that like he was a man of peace, justice, and kindness, we would be people in a church of peace, justice, and kindness. So guide us into that way as we open your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our scripture for this morning is John chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. So hear now the word of the Lord. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, 
and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burns. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And this is God's word. Well, abide in Jesus, and you will bear much fruit. Do not abide in Jesus, and you can do nothing. About two years ago, the front end of the strange thing coming from China named the coronavirus, I was actually in the midst of, of genuine concern of what was ahead, very hopeful in a time of pandemic. If you read through church history, times of pandemic have largely exclusively, exclusively been times of massive growth for the church, especially the early church. That in the second and third centuries, as various plagues hit Roman citizens, Christians showed a very different way of living than their Roman society. As Romans fled the cities to get away from the sick, often leaving family members behind to die alone, Christians moved into the city. It's where hospitals come from as Christians built homes to care for and, and tend to the sick as they died. Which, of course, was a great risk to the, the, themselves. They understood disease then. They knew by tending to the sick, they put themselves at risk. And so we read a third century bishop by the name of Dionysus. He wrote this about what he witnessed in a time of plague and pandemic in the early church. He writes, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life supremely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. And I wondered, would this be a time for the American church to embrace the way of Jesus? to courageously serve and provide an alternative witness and way of life to our culture and moment. There are historians like Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, says this picture that Dionysus paints for us 
is why the church went from a persecuted, beleaguered minority to the dominant religion in Rome. That watching Christians, as Dionysus says, never sparing themselves and thinking only of others, as Romans witnessed that, witnessed the creation of hospitals, witnessed the tending to the sick by Christians, witnessed them denying themselves and their own freedom to serve those who are vulnerable and sick, the church experienced revival and power. And that's what I, what I was hopeful for two years ago. So let me ask us, how many of us would look back on the last two years and say the church has been a place of power and revival? Abide in me, Jesus says, and you will bear much fruit. Do not abide in me, and you can do nothing. So I wonder, is the American church abiding in Jesus or something else? Now that question is above my pay grade, and I'm really not interested in it. I'm interested in me, in you, and this church. I want to abide in Jesus and bear much fruit. If you're a follower of Jesus, I hope that's your burning passion. Not looking at those around you in judgment, but saying, Lord Jesus, I want to be abiding in you and bearing much fruit. And I want for this church to be a place, a community that abides in Jesus and therefore bears much fruit. But that raises a bunch of questions. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? How do we abide in Jesus? And why abide in Jesus and not something else? Those three questions sound like a sermon I would listen to. Maybe you'll listen, I don't know, but those are the three questions we're going to press into this morning. First, so what does it mean to abide in Jesus? He commands us to abide in him. What does that mean? Uh, Well, the Greek word is the word meno, which is translated in other places to remain, to stay put, And and those are important things, but Jesus ultimately gives us an image that I think we should take when we think of what it means to abide, which is the image of a vine. A vine has branches coming off of it, and as long as the branches are connected well to the vine, they abide in the vine. The vine gives the branch life, and the the branch then produces fruit. So what it means to, to abide is to be a branch connected to the vine and therefore producing fruit, which is interesting because... This metaphor of abiding a vine is both an active reality and a passive one. It calls us to action. It's a command. You are to abide in Jesus. But it's also very passive. Think of it like this. If you were to go down to Anderson's winery later today and look at the vines, you would see all of these branches abiding in the vine. But it would appear that they are doing nothing. They're just plugged in. That's it. They're just there. So in one sense, to abide, it's, you're, it's just a receptive practice, right? It's, you're just receiving. It doesn't look like you're doing anything. And yet, it's active in the sense to, to remain put or to stay put in anything requires great action. So let's say you were to go out onto Lake Michigan on a boat later today. To, to remain in Lake Michigan on that boat would actually require work. You have to be watching where are the waves taking you. 
You'd be asking, is it going to snow later today? Is the lake going to freeze over? Why is it so cold in April? Maybe you'd be asking those questions. I don't know. But if you, if you go into a lake, to remain in the lake requires work, requires action. And so to abide in Jesus is both a command to do, but also a gift to receive. But I do want to be clear. I think it's primarily a gift to receive. That Jesus tells us to abide in two things in this passage. The first is in himself, we're to abide in Jesus. But he further unpacks that in verse 9 when he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. That abiding in Jesus means abiding in his love for us, which is a receptive act. We do not do anything to convince Jesus to love us. He just does. And we're called to remain in that love, to stay connected to his love. And I think that's actually a really helpful way to further unpack what it means to abide. That we all remain connected to something that we think will will give us life. Something that we think will love us, give us meaning in the world. And we plug into that and we try to draw life and meaning and love. So what are you abiding in? What are you connecting in? What are, what are you looking at and saying, without that thing, I can do nothing. This is the thing that will love me and guide me through life. What is that? A few years ago, I was at a, a Sunday morning church service on graduation Sunday. So they called up the, all the seniors onto the stage. It was a, a pretty large church. There was, a, there was a lot of seniors up there. And they had all the seniors give bits of information about themselves. Uh, you know, who they are, their family, what high school they went to. But the last question was the most interesting to me. The last question they had them all ask is, what college are you going to? And hearing kids give answers to that question was really interesting. One, assuming all of those kids should go to college. But two, as as kids began to give their answers, the congregation gave different level responses. So someone was going to Ivy League, an Ivy League school. There was a whoo. Someone was going into the military, so they got a large applause. And depending on, like, the status level that you achieved through whatever you were doing post-graduation, the congregation responded in kind. And it was weird for me. Now, again, maybe I'm almost 40, so I might be getting to, like, old man at the gallon of the clouds age of my life. I don't know. Maybe I'm being too hard on them. But my thought is, like, why not ask graduating seniors, what do you love about Jesus? What is it about being a Christian that you want to serve him for the rest of your days. Instead, it was, how are you going to, what career are you going to, to go into? And I say this because I grew up in the church, and when I decided to become a pastor, I had a lot of Christians I respected who told me, don't do that because you can make more money doing something else. I wonder how much of the American church abides in money, career status and wealth, success, Make a name for yourself and not Jesus. That's a powerful witness in our day and age is 
If you want to have meaning, without a good career, you can't do anything. Without a good college degree, you can't do anything. None of that's true. It's very powerful. That what are you abiding in that you say, without that, I have nothing? When someone asks you who you are, is your first answer to tell them what you do? Or is it to mention Jesus in some way, shape, or form? And I say this because I think, I think this is taking root in some of our kids' lives. There's a, a statistic you're going to hear more about in the months ahead. That 70% of kids at the age of 18, when they, get, they hit 18, they leave the church. They get to college, they graduate out of high school, they leave the church. Why? Well, if you abide in me, Jesus says, you will bear much fruit. Do not abide in me and you can do nothing. I think our kids may be picking up our theology. What really matters is making money, getting into the right school, having the right grades. And they receive our theology and they pursue that life. So question one, what does it mean to abide? Well, it means to stay put, to remain, to be connected into, to draw life off of a a source and then produce fruit. And Jesus says, listen, it's me and a lot of fruit or it's not me and a lot of nothing. That's what it means to abide. Question one. Question two then, so how do we abide in Jesus? Jesus says, listen, abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. And that should raise the question, well, what fruit does he have in mind? What does, it, what does it mean to bear fruit in the way of Jesus? And he actually tells us in verse 10, he's very explicit on this. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Jesus says, I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus connects abiding in his love, ab- the practice of abiding, with obeying his commandments. That to abide in Jesus leads to obedience to his commandments, which means fruit in Jesus' minds is obedience to his commands. And John unpacks this further in the letter that he writes, 1 John, which we preached on in January and February. In 1 John 2.6, he writes, Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. If you say, I abide in Jesus, it means you should walk in the way in which Jesus walks. And that means a couple of things. One is it means you will do the sorts of things that Jesus did. You you will imitate your life with Jesus' life. If you abide in Jesus over time, you will begin to live in the way in which Jesus lived. You'll imitate him. You'll walk in the way in which he walked. So that raises the question, well, how do we do that? Because Jesus did, did some pretty wild things. And I'm not even talking about the miracles. I mean, think about some of the the commands that Jesus lays at our feet, how difficult it is to follow Jesus. So listen, there's only two ways I think that you become like Jesus over time. One is to try very hard. But that's difficult because, again, think of some of the commands Jesus gives. Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. So if someone insults you, this is a hard word about you in, in work, in your neighborhood, at school. Jesus says your response is to be kind to them and love them in response. Which is easy, right? Well, just try hard to do that. <clears throat> or think of this. Jesus uh, in Acts is quoted by Paul as saying, It is better to give than to receive. 
And you read Jesus' theology of money, it's pretty wild. It's pretty radical. And it's important to know in his day, the expectations of what Jews gave to the temple and to the poor was, was pretty, pretty high. We hear the 10% number, but that doesn't include all their expectations. I've heard one scholar say that the expectation of the average Jew to give towards the temple and to the poor was around 30% of their income. You read Jesus' words, he didn't bring that expectation down at all. So how many of us with ease could give away 30% of our income tomorrow to the church and to the poor? That'd be easy, right? Just try. Or Jesus says, forgive others as I've forgiven you. And on the cross, as he's being murdered, Jesus forgives his murderers. I mean, how many of us have been wronged? But it, whatever it was, it wasn't at the level of murder because you're here. Which means you have an easier time forgiving your enemies than Jesus did. But it's so hard, isn't it? The answer isn't to try really hard. We, we can't try really hard into to being and living a life that walks in the way in which Jesus walks that is kind to those in need, that loves his enemies, that prays for those who persecutes, who's radically generous to the poor and to the people of God. That's hard work. You can't try your way harder into being like Jesus. So how do we do it? Well, think of it like this. Uh, Believe it or not, in 2018, I ran the Chicago Marathon. It was good. First service, a few people laughed, and I was like, that was not a joke. So thank you for not laughing. We're in a much better place. Um, but you probably are wondering, how did you do that? You don't maybe look like the average runner would look like. Well, the way I did it was I did not get to the starting line the day of the race and say, I'm going to try really hard to go 26.2 miles. I've never ran in my life. Let's see how this goes. I didn't do that. Just like you and I should not say, man, I look at Jesus forgiving his en- enemies, radically generous, a healing presence to those in the outlet. And I'm going to try really hard to just be that tomorrow. It doesn't work. Instead, what I did was I started to abide in the world of running. I didn't realize, like, they make shoes specific for runners. They're incredible. The day I bought my first real pair of running shoes, that first day I was 30 seconds a mile, 30 seconds a mile faster than I was my previous run. It was awesome. That I learned you, you can't run with your shoulders up tight because your, uh, your shoulders will start to hurt after time. You've got to relax your arms when you run, especially when you run long distances. I learned that the temperature really matters and that the hotter it is, you've got to slow, slow down your time or else you're going to harm yourself. And in Kansas City, when I would get up sometimes at 3.30 a.m. to run, it would be 80 degrees already. And I had to slow my time down or else I wouldn't make the distance I needed to make. And there was, there's guides to that. So I just abided in the world of running. And over time, I did little things that I could do. So one day... I was able to do something very large I had no chance of doing without all of those little steps. And I, I think it's the same way in our spiritual life. That we do little things we can do and over time that grows into being able to do large things that we could never do. That's even what the metaphor John gives us in 1 John 2 is all about. Walk in the way. If you abide in Jesus, you walk in the way in which he walked. Well, I can walk. I can imitate Jesus in some small ways so that in the things I look at and say, there's no way I could ever do that by doing those small things I've prepared in the large things. So that raises the question, well, what are, what are the small things Jesus did that I can, I can walk after him, I can mimic him, 
So over time, I can do the large things that he did. I want to be clear, this is not work salvation, right? Jesus says, abide in my love. He already loves us. But as the author Dallas Willard once said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. If you think the Christian life is Jesus saved you and you'll see him when you die and that's it, you've like, you got to open this book. It's really interesting. There's a lot of effort involved in following Jesus, not to earn our place before God, but, but because we want to abide more deeply in his love. We want to be like him. We want to abide in him. We want to bear much fruits. So what I'm going to give you this morning is three practices in a post-pandemic world that should lead to Christians being an alternative witness to actually do the things Jesus did, to actually live lives in such a way that we would live as if Jesus was living through us. Three practices, one daily practice, two weekly practices. Daily practice one is to pray. Not revolutionary, I know. But Jesus says something here that's worth unpacking. Verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, we have to all know what Jesus is not saying, which is that whatever you ask God to do, he's going to do that for you. Like, Well, it sounds like he's saying that. I know it sounds like he's saying that. But just common sense and living life tell us, well, that's clearly not what he meant, right? Because one, all of us have asked for God for things he hasn't done. But two, just like think that out in a practical way. Imagine what this world would be like if God granted everyone's request on demand. Would this be a better world? Probably not, right? I mean, I think of it like this. I have four kids, and if I let my kids, if I granted every request, like they would have marshmallows for breakfast, they would never go to sleep, uh, they would watch television all day long, it would not be good, but I would give them whatever they want. And listen, if the the spiritual gap in maturity between me and my three-year-old is like maybe this. The gap in spiritual maturity between me and God, like the the room's not big enough. So of course, God's not going to just give us whatever we want. That's not quite what Jesus means. And it's clear because he qualifies that statement. He says, before he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be granted, he qualifies it by saying um, in verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, Then ask for whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Which means his words abiding in us are the prerequisite for him doing what we ask of him. So think think of it like this. Let me make this practical. When you pray, pray what you know God wants to do. The more you pray what you're unsure God wants to do, the less confident you can be he's going to to answer that. So even more practical— I've grown up in the American church, and the primary thing the American church has communicated to me about prayer is pray to change your circumstances. So if you have a disease, pray it goes away. If you have a surgery, pray it goes well. And, and I would say most of the prayer requests we, we receive are related to changing conditions around health. Now, I want to be clear, that's not wrong. Pray for whatever you want to pray for before the Lord. But what I can say is the way the American church prays is very different than how we see praying in the Scriptures. Where praying for a change in circumstance is very rare in the Bible. It's very rare. Read through the Psalms. It's very rare. In fact, this week I was in Colossians. Um, and I've heard this said. I, I, don't, I haven't studied theology enough to, to say I, I think this is true, but I've heard theologians I respect say this. Not once in Paul's 
all of his requests for prayer, does he ever pray for a change in circumstance? Colossians 4, he's in, he's in prison. He tells the Colossian church, pray for me. He doesn't say, pray that I get out. He says, pray that I preach the, the gospel boldly in these chains. Which we know God wants to do through him. We don't know God wants to get Paul out of prison. We do know he wants the gospel preached. So pray for that. I think we probably all agree that happened. That, that prayer was answered in Paul's life. So when you pray, don't just, don't just pray. Although, let me also... Just pray. If that's where you're at, just pray. God wants to hear from you. He just wants to be in community with you. So just pray whatever you have. But in, over time, we as, Ameri- as Christians should start with the scriptures and then let those scriptures lead our prayers. So I did, that, I did this this morning. When I prayed for Ukraine, I went to Psalm 17 where David prayed against his enemies in Psalm 17. And I used David's words to pray on behalf of Ukraine against their enemies. And if there's some wild stuff about enemies in prayer in the psalm. Let the, the scriptures lead your prayers before the Lord. That's daily practice one is pray. Pray in the, word, in the way of the scriptures. Uh, the second practice, but the first weekly practice in a post-pandemic world is, is, is fasting. I want to encourage you to fast. That, that all of us should think about what, what is it that we abide in that we try to draw meaning and love and uh, connection to give us life, what is it that we try to draw life to that competes with Jesus? And I'll listen, probably for all of us it's different answers, but for most of us, we could probably all give a similar answer, which is this thing. The average American spends five hours a day on this device. 57% of Americans spend more than five, American adults spend more than five hours a day on this device. That's a third of our waking hours. How many of us, like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, before the iPhone was invented, were like, someday I want to have a small screen I give a third of my life to? Or think of it like this, 2019, pandemic rolls in, so 2020, do we devote more time to prayer and community? No. We increased our time on this device by 30% during the pandemic. Now, I want to be clear. Why, why bring this up? It's not because I think this is the devil box and we should all throw it away. That's not why. But what does this thing do for me? Well, it, it makes me into a mini-god. I can buy anything I want in the world on this thing. And have it shipped to my house in two days. I can have almost any meal provided to me from this device. And have it in my home within 30 minutes to an hour. I can talk to anyone, almost anyone in the world on this device. I can find out any piece of information I want to find. This thing makes me into a little mini God. I can entertain myself. Watch any video or show I want to watch wherever I want, whenever I want. I mean, this thing cultivates in me a borderline godlike status. And what fasting does is say, no. The only thing I need to stay connected to to survive is God. I don't even need food to survive. I need the Lord. I need God to survive. The fasting is, is where I say with my body, I abide in Jesus and I will bear much fruit. 
Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. So I'm going to carve out a day in my week where in lieu of, my, of, of eating, I'm going to engage God in prayer. I'm going to seek the Lord. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to say no to myself so that I can say yes to God. And here's the thing. Not eating for 24 hours may sound impossible. Well, it's, it's much easier than forgiving your enemies. And if I can't say no to food for 24 hours, how am I going to say no to my desire for vengeance? How am I going to say yes to loving people who frustrate me? You see, we, we do something we can do, and over time, we do something we can't. And Jesus filled his life with fasting. He's fasting before he launches, launches his public ministry. He's fasting before he picks his disciples, the men who are going to accompany him through his ministry. And if Jesus needed to fast to seek the will of his Father... How much more do we need that practice in our lives? So, so fasting. Third and, and final practice, weekly practice, community. You need others surrounding you, both them serving you and you serving them. Too often we think of the church as a place I come to receive. That's not how it works. It's a two-way, it's a two-way street. That actually by serving oftentimes... We are, are moved into the way of, of Jesus. That you find Jesus serving his community, teaching them, washing their feet, doing the most disgusting practice. Not just being around people to receive from them, but to give to them. And, and I want to encourage you into that. That increasingly in our culture, church going is not a weekly deal anymore. Because we have so many other competing things to fill our time with. All good things. But it's why we've been talking over the last few weeks Come weekly, and then when you come, don't just worship one and receive, but serve a service as well and give to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So earlier I shared a statistic. 18, or, uh, 70% of kids, when they turn 18, walk away from the church. And here's the thing. We've done enough data now to know what prevents that from happening. What means that when a child turns 18 and leaves the church, they will remain in the way of Jesus and not walk away. And we're going to be talking about a number of those things that you can do, uh, that we can do. But one of the most important things for kids to retain faith post-18 is that they know five adults in the church outside of their parents. If a kid knows five adults in the church who know their name and, and broadly speaking, you know, not spend an, an hour every week with them, just know their name and and relationally connected to them, if a kid knows five adults, they will not walk away from the church at the age of 18. So that means the question for this room is, how many kids in our church do you know by name? Not counting your own. We have 120 high school and younger kids on average in a church, a church on, on Sunday. How many do you know by name? And if your answer is, that's irrelevant, I graduated out of that, then that number, 70% of kids who leave, will continue. If, if we're not invested in our children having the faith, outside of the parents who need help, we will continue to hemorrhage kids outside the church. If it's someone else's job and not our own, this trend will not change. And so I say this also because as a pastor who's constantly had to like call people to volunteer, I always know what happens. It's the same thing wherever I've been. 
And, and the last few weeks have been the same. And I'm really grateful for those of you who have jumped in to serve in the hospitality team or a few in the tech team, a few in other areas. But we got almost no new children's ministry volunteers over the last few weeks. Don't say that to guilt you, shame you. That's how it always goes. And it's why the church is hemorrhaging young kids because we adults are not invested in their future. The best way to change that trend is for the people in this room to go to Mike Akert, Nora Schiller, and say, how can I help you? What do you need? I want to have a few kids who I know their name, ask them how they're doing, and that's really it. Because here's the thing. If you know my kids, if you ask them their name and how they're doing, they'll take the conversation from there. You won't have to do much. But we need your help in that. To not just see church as a place I receive, but as a place I go and give. Because through giving, which, listen, it may sound like crazy to make coffee for an hour on Sunday or to serve in children's ministry for an hour on Sunday. That may sound crazy, it is, and it's hard sometimes. But it's way easier than forgiving your murderers <laughs> or turning the other cheek. And if you can give in these little ways, these doable ways, over time you'll be able to do the large things that Jesus did. That when you abide in him through service, through prayer, through fasting, you bear much fruit. You become obedient to him. You walk in the way in which he walks. So that's the how. But third and finally, why, so why Jesus? And I'm going to say two things, then I'll take my seat. The first is verse 11. Jesus says this, if you abide in him, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Now someday I'm going to preach a sermon on why God is the happiest being in the universe. I don't have time for that because I got like minus one minute to finish the sermon anyway. But Jesus is saying, I am so full of joy. I want you to abide in me because I'm going to pour my joy into you. That's pretty good. And I think that should actually be our evangelism strategy. Too often the church's evangelism strategy is let's beat people with truth. Let's argue them into the kingdom. Let's have the right program. No, think of, think of it like this. When I moved to, uh, to Chesterton, I asked people, where should my family go to eat? Where are the good restaurants? And I heard a lot of things, but there was one restaurant I heard more than any other. And that is Stacks. Stacks is not paying me to say this, although if you work for Stacks and you'd like to pay me for saying this, I will happily receive Actually, I probably shouldn't on behalf of the Lord. But anyway, like I heard that. And once I knew there's a good place to go eat, I'm going to go eat in that place. And I went and it was, people were, were not lying. It's good. And, and likewise, we should be so full of the fruit of joy. When people taste that fruit, they're like, I like that fruit. What are they growing at Liberty? What's there? Because I want to eat more of that fruit. It should be, evangelism strategy should be a joyous life because we're connected into Jesus. So that's the first, man, abide in Jesus because he's happy. <laughs> He's a, he's a man. He's a God of joy. We don't serve a gloomy God. But second and finally, and, and man, Jesus ends. I don't have time to really press into this. He says, this is, is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I mean, that statement is, is incredible. The God of the universe says, um, I'm going to lay my life down for you because you're my friend. I mean, what could you abide in with your life that is that like self-sacrificial to you? Your career is not going to be like that to you. Money is certainly not like that to you. Most of the things we try to give our lives, the more we give, the, le the more it takes. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not, not going to take anything from you. I'm going to give you all of myself. My life on a cross to call you my friend, to welcome you into the family of the Father so that you are a son or a daughter in 
the kingdom. And I don't care like what you abide in, there's nothing like that. So, abide in Jesus and you will bear much fruit. Do not abide in Jesus. Never mind, no one's going to take that option. Let's pray. Father, we come to this place to connect into the vine that your joy, your life, your fruit, your obedience, your love may pour into us, that we may walk out of these doors into a life of fruitfulness, a life of abiding in you, God, that we would have the security of knowing the God of the universe has laid down his life for us, has shown his love for us, has called us his friend and adopted us into his family as a son or daughter. There's no better news than that. So, Father, help us to believe it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.